You are listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. We have a really cool segment submitted by a student who spoke with other students and alumni who traveled to Brazil either through Misty or Fulbright. But first, we're going to pick it up where we left off on the last episode where Bridget and Ari interviewed Kevi Duna. If you don't know, Kevi is a French tour guide that mainly focuses on the often overlooked Black history of Paris. He leads his guests through the streets and offers an alternative narrative to what may be a typical understanding of Parisian history. In the second part of this interview, they go beyond history and really get into the contemporary inequities that manifest in France whether it's the racial wealth gap, white supremacist protests, and how this idea of freedom from religion, which is popular in France, can actually hurt black and brown communities. What I think is most interesting about the rest of this interview is that they discuss how the U.S. perception of France differs from reality and how charged racial discourse has actually globalized and even what's inspired by what's happening here in the United States. I think it's really important to point that out when we talk about racial justice. So take a listen to the rest of this conversation. Is there a racial wealth gap, at least anecdotally in France? And then how, how does the French government sort of perceive that and try to address it? So, I, I've, I have read uh, studies about uh, racial wealth gap in America, and of course, I think it's much easier to do when you, you measure, uh, when you have statistics around race. In France, you, you don't, I, I've never came across uh, works like that, but even, even though uh, there's no uh, studies about uh, the income of, of black people or white people, it's quite uh, easy to, to, to tell that uh, there's definitely a, a racial uh, wealth gap in France and education is, is a perfect example. Uh, and once again, I don't, I don't want to tie everything I talk about, I don't want to relate everything I talk about to the tour, but um, uh, a big part of the tour is, is in the Latin Quarter of Paris where you have all, all the, the oldest, best schools uh, in Paris. And uh, the tour is there because uh, some of the first black movements in Paris were students from the colonies. So you have this old tradition of people from Senegal or Martinique or Algeria, Morocco studying in in these areas in France. But um, when I tell people that I go there because there's black history there, people do not understand because it's an upper-class neighborhood. It's a... Uh, it's in the center of Paris. Everybody who lives there is white. It's really, really, really nice. So when I tell people, I'm going to take you to the northern area of Paris where there are the African markets, they say, yeah, of course. But when I tell them, and there's also a part in the center of Paris next to the Senate and the University of La Sorbonne, it does not make sense. So uh, I think that in a very instinctive way, um, people uh, associate um, French black people with uh, the lower social class. Definitely. Uh, you, are, you have in France a very strong opposition between the city and the suburbs. Uh, in France, it's definitely 
um, let's say that when you had immigrations uh, in the 1960s, the 1970s, and the French government needed to build what you guys would call uh, projects, uh, it was they were not going to do it in the in, in in the inner city of Paris. So it was 10 miles, 10 kilometers away from from Paris. So when people people are probably if they if they want to dog whistle, the way to, to do it in France is to mention the suburbs, la banlieue. If you say, oh yeah, the people from the banlieue, people from the suburbs, we don't want them here. But they, they, don't, they would never say anything about black people or Arabs or anything like that. So, so yeah, it's, it's a different history, but sometimes you, you get to, um, uh, to draw some, to, I don't know, to connect some dots. It, 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 there, in recent times, I remember there were these news reports of um, sort of America placing its sort of racial lens on what's happening in France. And what I specifically mean is around these reported issues of what the no-go zones, right? Maybe that was, <laughs> maybe you, re, you recall that, um, and, and that was kind of a conservative, uh, sort of a right-wing talking point. Um, but when you see the imagery of who they mean that live in these no-go zones, it's very clear they're talking about black and brown people, people that may be dressed in more traditional Islamic clothing, people yeah. from Northern Africa or Western Africa. Um, and how did, was there a response to that um, in, in France? And how, how, did that, how did that land when people were so, talking so the, about the, the, the first reaction was from the mayor of Paris, uh, Anne Hidalgo. Uh, at the time, she wanted to sue uh, Fox News for, <laughs> for that story of no-go zones uh, in, in Paris. And then I remember the French internet uh, got very sarcastic about it because as often in American media, they got the map wrong. So they basically, for them, like these no-go zones were basically half of Paris. I was like, no, that's not true. These, these are places where white people are having brunch. Uh, what are you talking about, no-go zones? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, uh, that, that, that was, that was the, the reaction. Then when you talk about, um, um, you've mentioned like a, a racial lens from the American side. Um, this is something we were talking about just earlier while you were gone. Uh, a lot of people say that it's uh, Americanization, it's an imported conversation. And um, when there are, um, I don't know, um, you have medias like American medias, for instance, but also sometimes medias from the Middle East, like uh, from Qatar, who have um, uh, often um, published articles where they are quite quite critical of a sort of French conservatism around identity. And for, a, long, uh, for um, uh, a lot of young black and brown French people, they are very, um, I don't know, happy or not happy. I don't know if happy is the word, but in a way they are, they, they feel, uh, they are happy to see that they are not crazy when they, when they, they see the, um, like for instance, uh, an article in the New York Times or in the Guardian or in Al Jazeera talking about uh, racism in France, they're like, okay, okay, uh, it's a different perspective than French media who always um, deny it. So, so um, you have this conversation around, is it Americanization? Is it, is it something good? Is it something bad? And I, I, th I think with globalization and the internet, it's just young people uh, able and smart enough to, to see that sometimes their situation 
uh, can be um, uh, understood by, by someone in a different culture or country. I don't know if I was not really <laughs> clear, I'm sorry. No, I mean, it, you know, it is, I think it's an interesting point on sort of the globalization of American racism, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, how, and, how that, and how that plays out. Yeah, in, but, in, but, but on the far right too, on the what? far right, on the on the French far right, something hilarious to me is you know they always uh, talk about Black Lives Matter, um, uh, inspiring Black French people to copy what is happening in America. But the other side also is true. Uh, two months ago, there was a, a counter protest uh, against. Uh, they were um, basically talking about um, anti-white racism. So there's a, a group of uh, um, white supremacists who got on the top of a roof in Paris and they had a huge banner and uh, they, they had um, hashtag white lives matter. And right. in my head, I was like, okay, who is inspired by Americans right now? You know, right. it's, it's not only one side, it's only like the alt-right also is, is very globalized in a way and there's a lot of connections on, on, on every side, so yeah. The grievances that these alt-right protesters have and why they get up on a building and proclaim white lives matter. Yeah. I mean, though I'd imagine those look very similar to what you would find amongst the sort yeah. of more white supremacy groups in America. So yeah, the, the theory of the great replacement is actually a French theory, le grand remplacement. Uh, and it's very similar, even though if you go deeper, you will see some subtle differences uh, in our different domestic racisms. Like for instance, um, of course, the other is a problem, the other should go, but when you talk about the details, like American racism and French racism are not necessarily going to, to see everybody as the same level of threat. What I mean is, don't ask me why, but once I saw online a debate between two uh, white French supremacists and they were approaching each other, and once one of them said, uh, everybody knows black people are not violent. Everybody knows black people are not violent. It's uh, Arabs, uh, like Muslims are the threat. Uh, and there's this sort of uh, French vision. We're probably never going to be uh, invaded by uh, sub-Saharan sub Africans. The real danger is, you know, uh, the Moorish and, and the Muslims and, and it's uh, back to the Crusades. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, there's not like the same level of, um, uh, hysteria around black people, uh, I would say, in, in, in French racism. It, does that, the same um, lack of statistic gathering exist amongst religious groups as it does among racial groups, or is it particular to racial groups? Uh, that's a good question. There are, like, there's often uh, a number of six or seven million Muslims uh, in France which would make them the second religious group in the country. But uh, it's not a question asked in the, in the, um, in the, sen in the census. So I, I really don't know where the number is coming from. Uh, okay. in, in France, the, the, there's a strict, very severe separation between religious, religion and the government. So to, to, to the point that um, we have a lot of uh, issues of identity politics that are more related to religion like for instance, the hijab, the religious scarves, uh, more related to religion than, than race uh, sometimes. Like uh, right. uh, there, there's more 
controversies and political debates around uh, can Muslims be uh, real French people than anything related to like an ethnic group or a skin color or something like that. Right. I remember reading in an article one time that in the American perspective, it's freedom of religion. And in the French perspective, it's freedom from religion. Yeah, that ex that's completely yeah. right. And, and, and I think it's also because of, of, a, of a French history and a, a French um, uh, relationship to, to, to religion, to faith uh, in, in general. It's true that freedom is something that you gain out of religion often in, in, in France, a way to make sure that the Catholic Church is not every day uh, meddling in, in your life. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's also a lot of, um, I don't know what is the word, um, resentment against uh, people who, who show their faith. Uh, that's that's uh, quite uh, common uh, in French life, uh, especially if it's not Catholic, I would say. So just uh, coming back to the history of African-Americans in Paris, um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, the greats, you know, of, 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 of the American writers like Langston Hughes um, spending time there and James Baldwin um, drawn to a um, some semblance of uh, equality. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, did that exist any, anywhere else in Europe at the time? I mean, was that a uniquely sort of Parisian um, experience for people? Did it exist in other places in France? Could you find it in Spain or Italy or Germany or anywhere else uh, around there? I think London has. London, London as a big international cosmopolitan uh, also has been uh, sometimes a welcoming uh, city for African-American uh, uh, intellectuals and artists, uh, even though I'm, I'm not a specialist. Uh, but 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 I don't see so many other uh, examples. There are, there have been important events in Brussels in Rome, but a place where you would have uh, international um, um, conferences inviting the most important uh, black intellectuals, like you had one in Paris in the in 1956. It's 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 not really something that common. Uh, you had like a Pan African con. Congress conference in London, you had another uh, um, uh, conference of black artists in Rome, but I think Paris had a, a very special place. And I think it's also because of the special relationship between France and Africa. Um, most of the French uh, colonial influence was in Africa and still to this day, the relationship between France and, and Africa, it's really uh, often a little bit like the back the backyard uh, of, of France, uh, what, what we call uh, in, in French une sphère d'influence, uh, and yeah, so so yeah, the, the the connection between even like the 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 future of the French language often is is uh, uh, is in Africa probably or at least potentially, and so yeah, the the, the relationship is not over is what I mean. Right. And, you know, from my experience working in uh, Francophone African countries, uh, there is a there is a fondness, you know, for, you know, French culture. And, um, you know, you can go and find the patisseries and boulangeries um, in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Um, they're everywhere. Um, but if you go to, you know, the former British um, colonies in Africa, 
you don't see those strong connections. I mean, really what you see is maybe the English language and uh, the parliamentarians and judges are still wearing these white the wigs. Um, yeah, no, the Higgs, yeah, the <laughs> but yeah. like, you know, there are, I feel like there are aspects of, of, of French culture, certainly the cuisine that has really stayed and yeah. people have a... And, 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 it's, and it's also really criticized uh, in, in, for instance, in Pan-African movements. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called France-Afrique, and it's the sort of relationship that the French Republic uh, developed with uh, Western and Central African countries, a uh, relationship of, uh, um, that, that are not always official and clean. Uh, it's a lot of coups and uh, uh, financing uh, political parties and, uh, and weird friendships with dictators. And, yeah. So, um, but, 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 but I, I think also, um, as I, as I said, I, I was born and I grew up in, in Martinique. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm in France, in mainland France, I'm, as I'm, I'm supposed to call it, uh, sometimes I'm uh, impatient with uh, French um, ungratefulness to the others, like uh, this sort of sometimes um, uh, French position of we're great, we're amazing, our, our culture is... Uh, uh, everywhere and it's a it's a great one etc and at the same time not really being thankful for the people who made it possible which is all the people who were colonized by the french uh, all the people who i don't know it's uh, all the people who came also to to uh to rebuild the country when needed so yeah. so so that's also what i have in my mind when i do the tour uh, whether i like it or not so yeah yeah that's that's very fascinating. And I'm glad you kind of looped it back to you because I was hoping if you didn't mind kind of if you wanted to show, um, share a little bit more of a personal perspective of growing up, you know, in an old French colony, Martinique, and then, you know, moving to Paris, kind of what that transition was for you. Yeah, so I didn't go straight from Martinique to Paris. I spent four years in Rennes, which is in Brittany, in the west uh, of France. And I must say, Rennes has been uh, a nice experience uh, overall. Uh, I think it was quite friendly, and yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was like a, a nice buffer zone or something uh, a little bit friendlier before Paris, which is not the friendliest city in the world. Um, the nicest, maybe, not the friendliest. Uh, but um, uh, and and then moving to Paris, it, it was different because. Um, uh, I think Paris is a much bigger city, so human interactions are much uh, harsher. Uh, like sometimes people compare it a little bit to New York, where I say New Yorkers, you know, are a little bit uh, not appreciated everywhere in the U.S. I think it's the same with Parisians in, in France. Uh, but at the same time, Paris is a very exciting city. It's very challenging, much more cosmopolitan than the rest of France. And at the same time, there is an important Black community uh, in Paris. So when I moved back to Paris, I... I felt like I, in a way, I reconnected with, with my blackness, or at least with the Caribbean community uh, of, of Paris that is quite present. Uh, also with African-American tourists traveling to Paris. Um, uh, all these issues, um, I'm, I'm not going to say they were uh, gone, but they were, I don't know, dormant sleeping. Uh, and they came back to me when I moved to Paris, which is a city that has, as I said, a much bigger population, but also 
yeah race race is real uh, in paris you are uh, if you are a black man you are a black person uh, in, in paris there are areas I, I realize it now especially when i do tours these days with uh, uh, more black french people than before and so when we go in some areas like uh, the Luxembourg garden for instance when we go there on a saturday afternoon and it's a lot of people and i work there with a group of 25 black people um yeah people are not colorblind anymore so you know this yeah so 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 yeah that, that's that's the all the 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 question that go through my mind when when i do the tour so. and where did you get the idea to start uh this doing this tour and how did that evolve i was just about uh, to ask kind of okay. was that a personal like passion thing that came out or how did they yeah, how did the tour start yeah, no, so, so the, the, the tour uh, is a lot of weird coincidences. I was never meant to become a tour guide. I was supposed to uh, work in the administration of nursing homes. Uh, uh, and I hated it. So I decided <laughs> not to do that. Uh, I was unemployed. A friend of mine uh, uh, told me, if you speak English and you know Paris, you could become a, a tour guide with us. So this is how it started. And I really, it was, I, I, initially I thought I was going to do it maybe six months and I really enjoyed it. And I decided I needed to have something more personal. And being a tour guide is also about uh, expectations. Um, the company I was working for back then would tell people, uh, you need to go there uh, in front of Notre Dame at 2.30, there will be a Parisian tour guide waiting for you and he's going to wear a pink jacket and uh i would show up on time with a pink jacket and people sometimes would say no but they told us you are going to be a parisian you know or where are you from or are you french or you know this, this type of reaction so this led me to also uh, ask my, uh, questions about myself what am i doing here people are asking me questions i'm not ready to answer you know why are there so many black people here um uh, and, uh, and, and, and that was weird because I was in an environment of um, friends of different backgrounds, a very cosmopolitan uh, moment of my life. Uh, and, and for most of the people uh, I was hanging out uh, back then, race was not really something important. So like, no, no, but don't worry about that. It's, it's, it's not real. Don't, you don't have to, to think about it. And maybe in their world, it was kind of true, but the cold hard reality is different. Like if you're uh, doing a sort of uh, service job and and you're in front of someone who's racist and will not shake hands with a black person, uh, yeah, that's that's something that might happen on a Tuesday. So all of these things together brought me to to doing the tour. Yeah, the, the tour of the Black History of Paris. I really want to go on your tour. Um, <laughs> so I'll have to work that in. I was in France when I was very little. Okay. Um, I remember I, <laughs> I was in France. Um, we happened to be there. I think I was probably fourth grade or fifth grade or something on like a family trip. And it was during the gay pride parade. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's a big day in Paris, yeah. Yeah, but I, I had no idea what was going on or who, who these people were and why they were dressed <laughs> like this. 
And I remember asking my parents and I sort of like, like, what is this? What's going on? And they said, you know, it's the gay pride parade. And like, like I was supposed to know what that is, right? Yeah. So um, anyway, so that's, uh, so that's how it's I- It's a colorful memory. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, it'd be nice to come back as an adult and just move around a bit and, you know, connect with people. Um, I'm also very interested in the, you know, as the person who runs the Africa program, is the inter you know how different countries or regions of the world interact with Africa differently, right? So I think in America we have a certain way, the UK has a certain way, you know, France has a certain way, China. What has about a the French way. one? What about the French one though? Yeah, I remember this guy, um, that really really good um, player on the you know, the French soccer team or football team, Mbappe, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. Um, and he was like basically the reason that France won the World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone's like, oh, those African guys on France. And then, you know, uh, what's his name? The pre um, Macron was like, they're not African, they're French or something like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I can't remember where Mbappe's, uh, where his ancestry is. But, um, yeah, so he's half, half Algerian and half from Cameroon. Okay, got it. Which he's is super fun. Which is super, uh, that's, that's like, such a French combination in a way. He's from, he was born and grew up uh, right outside of Paris in Bondy, in the, in the difficult suburbs oh, I uh, see. Okay. Paris. And, and the controversy started when Trevor Noah from The Daily Show oh, said yes. Africa won the World Cup. <laughs> That's and, what it was, okay. And the French yeah, ambassador went nuts. It was like, how can you say that? And because in France, the only people who would say, look at this African team, is the far right. So from a French perspective, it's, it's an attack. It's questioning the Frenchness of these players because they're black. So, okay. yeah, so, so it's a different point of view on the world and, yeah, and identity and citizenship and everything. Right. But I also think nobody would... I feel like people wouldn't say that about African-Americans. You know, a lot of the most prominent American athletes are black. Yeah. Um, but no yeah. one says, oh, this yeah. is, a, you know, I don't know if Trevor Noah would make that same joke, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Because we we're trying yeah. to create an inclusive society and I don't know. So. Now I'm going to present a project from MIT student Sarah Sime. She interviewed four students who all went to Brazil and from listening to this mini podcast, they had the time of their lives. Brazil is a vast country. It's very multicultural. It has one of the largest economies in the world. So I think you'll really enjoy these stories the students tell. Now, Sarah. Or does someone here actually speak Portuguese? <laughs> you all went to Brazil. Fazer. 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 Spanish. <laughs> what are you going to say? Pack your, your bags. Welcome to MIT Brazil's first podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, a project assistant at the department and I'll be interviewing four incredible alumni and graduate students who were able to go to Brazil during the first few months of 2020. Two of my guests were 2020 Fulbright Scholars, 
which is a year-long scholarship program funded by the U.S. Department of Education that sends recent grad and graduate students to research, study, or teach in over 140 countries. My other two guests were a part of MISTI's GTL, which is short for Global Teaching Lab, 2020 program, where MIT students are matched with high school hosts in 24 countries to teach STEM for three weeks in January. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us debut our first broadcast. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, hey everyone, I'm Samira. I graduated in June 2019 with a dual degree in computer science and comparative media studies with a humanities concentration in Spanish. And I am here because I had an awesome experience in Brazil um, working with Kat um, with the Fulbright program. And we were, I was placed in Porto Alegre, in Rio Grande do Sul, um, in South Brazil. And I'm excited to be here um, to talk about my experience working with English language instructors down there. Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, so I graduated MIT in 2019 with a Bachelor's of Science in Biology and a minor in Applied International Studies. Um, so after MIT, I actually moved to Brazil uh, with Samira uh, to do a Fulbright Fellowship. Um, so I was doing a, I was a Fulbright ETA, an English teaching assistant, um, and I was based in Pato Branco, Paraná, which is in the southwest of uh, Brazil. Hi, my name is Gretchen. Uh, I just graduated this past June uh, with a double major in computer science and brain and cognitive science from MIT. And I spent this past January teaching in Brazil with Lucas and Hisipi. Yes, I'm Lucas. I just graduated from my master's in aerospace engineering from MIT. Um, and I spent two IAPs, so two Januaries in Brazil, uh, one month. One January in 2019, uh, teaching in São José dos Campos, close to Sao Paulo, and this year together with Gretchen uh, in Recife in uh, the Northeast. Why did you guys pick your respective programs? So Samira and Kat, you both applied to the Fulbright Scholarship. Can you elaborate why and like why you chose Brazil? Uh, yeah, I can start. This is Samira. I chose Brazil... You know, I would say primarily on a gut feeling, um, you know, with the way the Fulbright program works, each applicant picks a country to apply to and then sends their application to be read by um, both American and Brazilian representatives who then choose the final um, students that will be in the Fulbright cohort. Yeah, I've um, initially, as someone who did a Spanish concentration, it felt natural to go to a Spanish-speaking country. But I had my eyes set on Argentina initially because I had had experience working there. But for some reason, as I was drawing closer to the um, submission date, I had such serendipitous conversations with strangers, with friends, where the topic of Brazil would just come up. Um, whether it was someone saying they just met a Brazilian friend or someone talking about a Brazilian food they just had or a dance they just learned. So it felt strange to have the topic of Brazil pop up so much in my life at that time. And I started to explore that option 
but the deal was set when I went to go meet with Julia Mongo, the program coordinator, who randomly said that she actually could see me being in Brazil and asked me if I had considered the country. And it led to a really interesting conversation where I told her about my Nigerian heritage and she shared her experience having a husband who was also of West African descent, who had had a wonderful experience living in Brazil, um, traveling the country and just, it was just an amazing conversation to have that gut feeling, um, you know, revived in this conversation with Julia. So I changed my application pretty much the next day and writing my essay for Brazil felt nat more natural for me than it had initially for Argentina. So kind of seconding, seconding that, um, I think for me, what really stood out about Brazil was how multicultural it was. Kind of, they've got such a, such a range of, uh, of, you know, races and culture and I really got to experience that through during my time at, in Brazil. Um, and in particular, I was most interested in the, uh, how Brazil was, um, the, had the largest Japanese immigrant population. Um, granted I'm Chinese. So, um, but I think it was, it was really enriching to it really, um, uh, kind of comforting to, to know that there was this predominantly Asian population in, in, um, this country. Um, and then the Fulbright in particular, because I was, um, really interested in teaching, um, uh, ever since I started volunteering with the PD Green program, which was, which, uh, uh, serves prisoners in, um, Massachusetts. Um, and we work with them on education. So I really wanted to kind of continue exploring that avenue of, uh, education and, uh, specifically through Fulbright in Brazil. Wow. That's really cool. I like how you put a lot of thought of why you wanted to go into Brazil. It wasn't so much like, oh, you like a particular actor, you saw this movie, you heard this idea of Brazil, and thought like, oh, I like this. It's pretty interesting that you guys had more thought into it. So that was through Fulbright, and Lucas and Gretchen tried to go through GTL, which was a part of the Mr. Brazil program at MIT. Can you guys elaborate why you picked Brazil for your teaching opportunities? So... The way that I ended up in Brazil was actually, uh, it originally wasn't through any particular program. My friend had just graduated in 2019 and she was starting on a backpacking adventure. And so I told her, I was like, hey, we should go to Brazil. Like, this seems like a really cool place. We should go check it out. And so we were there for two weeks and we went to uh, Rio de Janeiro. We went to Sao Paulo. And by the time I came back to the United States, I was so in love with the country. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go back as soon as possible. <laughs> I must go back as soon as possible. So as soon as I got back, I sent an email to the Portuguese instructor and I sent an email to Rosa and I was like, okay, how do I do this? How do I, you know, I know that there are MIT programs that go to Brazil. Um, how do I get involved? And so I started taking Portuguese classes and Rosa uh, told me about the GTL program, and just like that, I was on my way. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. I had a really awesome time there, and all of the feelings that it, that going to Brazil that first time, that, you know, I just felt like everything about it was very inclusive, and there, there is so many different cultures that get brought together there. I was just completely blown away, and spending those 
five or six weeks there over January, it just really solidified that feeling for me. Yes, I think like I really wanted to do GTL because I also really like teaching. I also did BD Green, for example. Um, and the thing that I really, really interested me about Brazil was it like, it's, I think it's one of the 10 biggest economies in the world, but still there's like so much inequality. And like, um, I was really interested by that to see how it works and <laughs> to try to, I could help like some underprivileged people in Brazil to, to learn about topics we learn here in the US or like um, help them a bit. So I think it was really what interested me about Brazil. And of, next to that is also like, of course, like the cultural thing and like the sports thing, which I really like, and it's a beautiful country. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting mix. That's awesome. Did you have any sport experience in Brazil? Like, did you play with your students? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a lot, actually. It's like Gretchen is laughing, but it's like, <laughs> we played soccer quite a lot with the students in like the breaks or like after school and also next to that like played soccer on the beach quite a lot um, I think some of the my friends who was with there played volleyball there with people so I think yeah it's really and they're, they're pretty like or at least they pretend that they like playing with us <laughs> so what were your memorable experiences while working in Brazil like Lucas had a playing soccer with the students. Do you guys have something that you can fondly look back on right now? Food. Food was a bonding experience um, for us in Brazil, or for me in Brazil. I, I just, I, whenever I think of food in Brazil, I think of their really unique fusion um, dishes, fusion cuisine, where you can see interesting blends of like West African, European and indigenous and Asian dishes. You know, you go to a, a restaurant in Sao Paulo and you see a piece of sushi that has like West African like, flavor in it. You go to a pizza shop and you see a pizza that's like just a whole blend. You like see ham on it, you see beef on it, you see you just see all types of cheeses, all types. You see sweet pizzas. Like Brazilians were not afraid of flavor because they just what like they were just they just had everybody. They had every type of person there, and they wanted to you know with their dishes they wanted to um, exhibit that. And I just enjoyed um, I just enjoyed that experience of exploring cultures, exploring Brazilian cuisine through experiences with my students and with friends, friends like Kat, with other Fulbrighty TAs, and it was just wonderful. I love food, and I, I liked Brazilian food in many ways. I, I would agree. Um, for me, actually, I, I got the chance to, to do yoga with some of my friends, not necessarily my students, um, but some of the friends I made in Pato Branco. I also um, took up capoeira, which is their Brazilian form of martial arts. Um, I can't say I was great at it, <laughs> but it was definitely a really interesting experience, especially doing these two activities, which, um, especially with yoga, it's very, you know, you're listening to someone and you're trying to follow those, um, those, those motions, and I just didn't understand what people were saying. Um, I barely spoke enough Portuguese to have a conversation, let alone 
you know, quite understand what downward dog was in Portuguese. So it was, it was an interesting experience, but I, I've loved it. It was, it was definitely, um, you know, a, another flavor of, of their culture, um, especially in Pato Branco. Were there any challenges you experienced? I mean, I do think one challenge there is that like coming from living in the U.S., like you have to be a bit more careful with things. Like it's, of course, a bit more dangerous so, and something you have to get used to, I guess. Uh, a bit more limited, but I think once you're used to it, it's like fine, at least for me. I do think like people there are generally very warm and open towards others, even if they don't know each other. And I think doing things together there is very important. And yeah, I think that makes you feel like very welcome, which I think is very nice. Um, and I think it's also the whole family thing, which uh, people are so close to their family and they'll live together. And I think this is a very different way of life, but it's very like, I think it seems very wholesome. So. So I was telling Samira this earlier when we were chatting. Um, so I was in, you know, the southwest of Brazil, which um, I, I don't know if you guys have been uh, to, but it's very, especially kind of my town was very European influenced, which was um, kind of a culture shock, actually. I expected, you know, um, typical Brazil to be very multicultural. Um, and surprisingly, my town, like I was the only Asian there. Um, and it was it was a really interesting experience um, because, uh, as Samira put, you know, they have a very different way of of talking about race. Um, it's a little more, I would say, frank. Um, pe people in Brazil in general, I would say, are, are more honest. Um, so it was kind of interesting to to adjust to that and to kind of. Uh, field questions about my race and ethnicity. Um, and whereas it, it did make me uncomfortable at first, you know, I grew to kind of um, accept that. And, and I tried to use that as a, an advantage to educate people on um, my ethnicity and my culture. And um, I came prepared. I brought a lot of um, actually, so I believe by the time I went to Brazil, Chinese New Year had just passed. So I brought all these Chinese candies and I brought red envelopes and I was so excited to share it with all my students and they loved it. Um, they were so excited about um, all my um, cool knickknacks and candies. Um, and it was really exciting to see people like appreciate my culture um, and, and to see how, how kind of different um, views and um, maybe limited in a sense views they have of, of different cultures. Um, and got, it definitely was tough at times um, and a slight and very isolating at first. Um, and, you know, the layer of uh, racism that came with coronavirus was, was, a, was very difficult to deal with at first. Um, but I had a really great support network there. Um, and people, you know, my students were super supportive. And when I explained you know, what things are considered offensive generally versus not. And it was, we fostered like really great discussion about, uh, you know, what things are considered offensive or not. So I think it was um, a, a really enriching experience. Um, yes, I, I also wanted to follow up on that because I was also placed in South Brazil. 
And yes, I was in Porto Alegre, which was more of a city, um, but was still very heavily influenced by um, European immigration to Brazil. Um, you know, in, in terms of talking about challenges, that actually challenged me and the fact that it challenged my view of what Brazil was. Um, you know, when you look see Brazil, you think that you see images of tan or like brown, black people. Um, a lot of the representation of Brazil was from the north or the major cities where there has been a lot of um, mixture happening um, between race and ethnicities or amongst races and ethnicities. So it was actually quite cool to challenge that view and go down to the south and see how European immigration has influenced a country like Brazil, because we see that a lot in the U.S., and it was cool to see a flavor of that in a country like Brazil. Um, yes, there were moments of um, like isolation. There were days when that would pass when I did not see a single person who wasn't um, who looked like me or who um, was of African descent or even Asian descent. But I thought that made me stand out. That made me kind of um, a celebrity um, when I would meet people. I, I took. I said, "I'm going to be Beyonce here." So <laughs> I I really just used that as an opportunity to use that platform and really do what I was there to do as a Fulbright. Um, ETA and be an ambassador for the United States, be an ambassador for the African and African American experience in the U.S. and talk about my experience in Porto Alegre. Um, one thing I will complain about outside of moments of dealing with like questionable moments is the lack of um, pepper, the lack of spice. I didn't, I did not find pepper in Porto Alegre. And people found it so funny when I was, you know, almost hyperventilating, trying to find pepper for my food in the hostel. But it was a, those were just cool conversations to have. And I am so grateful for having had that experience challenge my view of Brazil and also allow me to become more comfortable in those cultural exchanges. I feel like I kind of had the opposite of that situation where I had spent a couple of weeks in Sao Paulo in the sort of like southern part of the country where I stick out less and I'm able to you know try to like blend in but when you get to the northeast um everyone there is very dark and so suddenly the fact that I have these like bright blue eyes and I'm you know look like I haven't seen the sun in years <laughs> I I I felt like a similar thing but obviously in the sort of opposite context those were the challenges you experienced when you were in Brazil were there any challenges you experienced when you were, like, leaving Brazil? So, like, when you were on the plane leaving Brazil, was there anything you were going to miss? Or was there anything you were going to look forward to or not? <laughs> COVID-19 segue. Um, I will say, like, when it finally became, when it finally came time to leave, I was like, really? I'm leaving? Like, like how, where did the time go? You know, I... I remember going out, um, we, we were staying very close to the beach, and I think that last day I'd gone down to the beach, and a couple of guys had come over, and they were asking me, you know, like, oh, like, you know, 
you're leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? It's about to be carnival. And, <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry, like, I have to go back. And they're like, no, but you're crazy. Like, why would you do that? Um, <laughs> it's, you're about to miss the best part. Um, and then, you know, I, I, when I finally landed back in the United States, it was like the coronavirus stuff had just kind of started eking into the news. And I remember thinking like, oh gosh, I hope I don't have any trouble coming back into the States. It, it was very strange when I left the United States and I entered Brazil through, through their customs. Like, I mean, you know, I was like nervous as most people are going through customs, but when I came back to my own country, I was somehow more afraid to re-enter my own country as sort of like, I, I just had all these like terrible scenarios in my head where you're like, oh, something's going to happen. I, I don't know. <laughs> it was very odd to feel afraid to like re-enter my own country. Yeah, I think for me, like, yeah, I, f I feel that too. And I think another thing that's especially typical for this situation, like going from Brazil back to like your MIT bubble, is that like, it's it's so different. Like in Brazil, I always felt like people were like more focused on like the social aspect, like being nice to each other, like having, being happy. Um, and then when you go to back to your MIT bubble, it's again into like your kind of your roller coaster of like uh, performing kind of thing. And I mean, that's kind of a, a abrupt change. And it's, I remember like both times I went back after IAP, like the first two weeks were like, <laughs> were a bit hard, like, oh, why am I here? Like, <laughs> what is it? But like, yeah, I think that's, that's a kind of a shock too. And I think, yeah, the COVID only made it, made it worse, I guess. Yeah, and Samira, you guys were in Brazil at the beginning of the pandemic. How did you feel when you first heard about it? It felt surreal. Um, it, it really didn't feel like it was actually a, a real problem. Um, you know, I was in a small town. It takes me, it took me about like probably 20 hours to get back to home, maybe 24 hours to get back home. Like you have to, you know, fly into Sao Paulo. So I had to fly Houston to Toronto, Toronto to um, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo to Curitiba, and then bus from Curitiba all the way to my small town of Pato Branco. So it's like, you know, you're way out there. And then hearing that schools were shutting down in the U.S., you know, it just didn't feel like a real thing, especially because there were bar bar like bar barely any cases in, in Brazil. Um, but, uh, you know, the reality of it kind of hit uh, when I realized we were all going home um, and we weren't really given a choice. Um, and, you know, looking back on it now, it makes sense. I'm, I'm glad that they did, uh, that everyone did kind of evacuate, but it was a really hard decision at first. And a lot of people, actually some people stayed. Um, for me, I actually adopted kittens the second week that I was in Brazil. So it was devastating to have to give them away before I, um, before coming home. Um, that was really hard to, to give up and just kind of see this opportunity slip through our hands because, um, of COVID, but, um, you know, trust, trying to stay positive as I was coming home. And I was glad to be like back with my family, but I definitely wasn't ready to leave Brazil. I had just started, you know, have creating a community and finding my community. And, um, 
Yeah. Yes. Um, the situation didn't feel as urgent in, when we were in Brazil as it had begun to um, manifest in the U.S. You know, like, that was around the time when we heard that MIT was giving students a week to pack their things and head home. And in our minds, we were like, okay, maybe this is going to be like a month thing. So they'll let us stay because it hasn't reached Brazil. But then we got an email almost a day later, a day after I had been teasing my friends about having to go home. <laughs> they said we would have to fly back to the U.S. So it was very, it was very difficult to also deal with that move because, you know, Brazil had pushed so many of us outside of our comfort zones. We were learning a new language, learning a new culture. Um, many of us really were fully independent for the first time. Some of us had left jobs. Um, you know, that was my first experience house hunting. And I was doing it in a language that I didn't fully understand. So, um, yeah, it was tough. It was tough to come back, especially under con the condition of socially isolating because I thought I was free-spirited. I thought I was social before I left America. I was, yeah, I am, but I was not, <laughs> I was not at the level that many, that seemed to be normal and regular for many Brazilians that I met. Um, so Brazil challenged me to come out of my shell and it felt, um, you know, it felt regressive to, have to go back to the U.S. and go back into a shell. Um, but I've been lucky because um, I've been with my family. I've been, I was, I, there were moments of homesickness. So I was happy to go back to my mom, her spicy cooking. I was happy to, <laughs> I was happy to go back to the drama of my siblings. Um, happy to, you know, just be home and feel comfortable. Um even though I missed this beautiful experience in Brazil. So um, it's been it's been bittersweet, and I think I've transitioned well into the quarantine and trying to stay positive each day. I'm so sorry your experiences had to be cut short, or if, like, your experience didn't, you had to readjust to a period of time you were very unfamiliar with, you know, as everything was going south. But I'm glad you had insightful experiences both being in Brazil and when you had to leave. You kind of, you guys kind of realized what mattered to you and how it changed your perspective on community, food, and all the things that make up life. It's really cool. Would you guys ever go back to Brazil? If so, when would you want to? And if you don't want to, why not? Gretchen is like tomorrow. <laughs> it's like tomorrow, please, <laughs> please let me go back. Um. <laughs> Yes, there were, I mean, there were some ETAs in Bahia, and they seemed to have a lovely time. They posted a lot of beach pictures, so <laughs> that would be a good time. That would be a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. I would love to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, ideally, so I'm applying to medical school right now. Ideally, if things kind of tied over, I'd love to go kind of as uh, for vacation and explore the parts of Brazil I didn't get to. So definitely the north, um, you know, do the touristy stuff as well and see Iguazu Falls. I was so close to it. I was like a three-hour bus ride. Um, 
but COVID happened and <laughs> unfortunately I didn't get to see Fosji Guasu. Um, but yeah, I'd love to go back um, maybe even for a longer extended time. I, I definitely want to stay connected to that country, um, whether it's, you know, with my future career somehow um, in with medicine or um, just go back and visit all the time. But Yeah, I feel, you know, many of the same sentiment or, or much of the same sentiment where I, you know, going to Brazil for the Fulbright was at such a, um, it was such a perfect time in my life to transition from undergrad to a fellowship and into graduate school um, or a career. Um, as of now, I'm going to graduate school and, you know, I would like to get more work experience before, you know, making more time to travel and explore um, the beautiful country of Brazil. But, you know, if I play my cards right, work and travel can coincide. And I would love for that type of, um, I would love for that. Um, regarding Brazil, you know, it, I got to Brazil based on a gut feeling. The country called out to me, and I learned a lot from that trip there. So I can only imagine how much more I have to learn, um, despite the lesson being cut short. So I'm excited. I'll go whenever life, whenever the country calls back to me, or whenever I have the funds and the time to go, because it's a beautiful place with many lessons to learn for any type of person. Yeah, I I agree with that. Like, I think it's gonna. I would love to go soon too. Especially, I really want to go to Carnival. Miss it like twice by a couple of weeks now. So <laughs> this time I am gonna stay. Um, yeah. So, but also like, there's so much to see. And like, yeah, I would really love to go back. Thank you so much again to Kavidouna and Sarah Sime. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, R.H. Gogovitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco de Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Quesar. Special thanks to Bridget McMahon. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll wrap it up with the song, Want You to Know by Scottish singer Martha Fionn. See you next time. Thank you.